Well, good morning, Obi Joyful Church. Man, it is good to be with you. Uh, as far away as we might be, man, uh, I've been looking forward to just a sense of connecting and looking at the posts on Facebook and just seeing that so many of us from all over the country are here. Uh, wow. Uh, I was, as I looked at that list I, of people that were popping up and saying, so-and-so's here and so-and-so's here, I was looking and thinking of the typical Sunday morning here when I'm standing in front and looking out, and some of you have your own seats. Some uh, never depart from those seats. And I'm thinking, I saw the Pattersons. Pattersons often very front row, sometimes on the right, but mostly to my right, they're, uh, they're left. Uh, and then, you know, of course, the Ryans, they have, Steve might fight you over his seats. Right back here, uh, Adelaide, front row. Uh, the Stoneberg boys, always in the very back. They're probably used to that from uh, high school. <laughs> they're always in the very, I'm not sure. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, Steph, always on my right these days. Kathy. Back over here, all the youth over this way. Anyway, it just uh, it's good to be with you and to be able to imagine you guys in your own homes. And I just saw one of my dear friends, Njikwa Biesniel, looking at us from uh, New York. And uh, man, it's it's good to to know you're out there, Njikwa. Uh, you have endured many of my talks as a high school student, and um, and on from there. It's just it's nice to uh, to be with you at a distance, even now. Well, we are uh, in 1 Corinthians, and Paul has a beautiful section on the resurrection. And we're going to go there. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And also during this message, there'll be a couple of times where I'm going to suggest that you send a couple comments, and, and you just want to post those on Facebook if you want to interact on those. So be ready when I bring those up. Paul is going to address something in 1 Corinthians 15 that seems like if it was me, I would have addressed it right at the beginning. But he waits till a little bit later in the book. And he brings up the fact that some of the people that were a part of that uh, Corinthian church believed that there was no resurrection. And they're in particular talking about resurrection of humans who die. Uh, they didn't believe that when we died that we would be uh, raised. They believed that that was it. It was to dust that we went. And so Paul wants to take that and say, look, if there's no resurrection for people who have come to faith in Christ, then we're missing something really big. We're also missing the fact that if there's no resurrection, there was no resurrection of Jesus himself. And he wants to address this and be very clear about how critical this is. He says it's of first importance that we understand it. So let me look, at you, look with you at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul wants to be sure there is no question that the resurrection of Jesus is critical, is foundational to the faith that we have. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing. In fact, Paul goes on to say something like, if there is no resurrection, then we might as well live like the Epicureans. We might as well live as large as we can, as wheels off as we can, do everything we can think of doing because there is nothing to live for except what it feels like to live for. And the resurrection brings into focus the fact that there is much more, much, much more, and this life is much shorter than uh, 
we would experience if we were just to go to dust. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask you with me to just to rest in something, to rest in this idea, to settle in, take a deep breath, and just enjoy the goodness of the truth of the resurrection. Let me just say that one more time. If we could just settle in as a church together, if we could just rest intensely, just relax to the fullest extent in the truth of the resurrection. I've got three points. One, there was a plan for redemption. Two, there is proof of the resurrection. And three, there is power in his presence. Three things, plan for the redemption, proof of resurrection, and power in his presence. So let's talk about this plan for redemption that Paul is going to bring to us. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3, we're just going to step back in the passage a bit. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So you see there in that passage, Paul presents the gospel to us. This is the full message of the gospel, but he brings it to us and he says two times in accordance with the scripture. He says there was a plan for the suffering of Jesus. It was foreshadowed throughout the scripture. And in fact, most theologians will point back and say the whole Hebrew scripture is this process, is, is moving forward, exposing the idea of the suffering Savior and the resurrection of Christ. But we can see it early with Abraham and Isaac, where a lamb is provided so that Isaac is atoned for. He doesn't have to die, but instead there's a sacrifice that takes his place. And then the Passover of the lamb, the Passover lamb in Egypt, where the blood of the lamb protected the families. There was a plan that was being revealed in Scripture. And Jesus called the suffering that he was going to experience for us that had been planned, he called it the cup. And you remember in uh, all the Gospels where Jesus goes to the garden, but it's told in Matthew in particular, I love the way he does it, where he describes the suffering of Jesus, where he brings three of his disciples a little bit further and he says, hey, wait with me. I'm suffering, I'm struggling, and I need you to be with me. And then he goes and prays. And in verse Uh, chapter 26, verse 39, Matthew. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' humanity is on display. His sole purpose for coming was to be our redeemer, to rescue us. This is the plan. But in this moment, Jesus is wrestling. You, you just, it's one of the most fascinating moments in Scripture where Jesus himself asked that this cup could pass from him. And his disciples, those he's dying for, are asleep. And three times Jesus goes and prostrates himself before God and says, hey, God, could this pass? But if not, your will be done. 
I, uh, I had a, the privilege of going for a, a little bike ride yesterday, and, and most of you will recognize exactly what I did. I rode up from Almont uh, up the Taylor Canyon towards the pass up there, and um, it was beautiful. It was about 55 degrees over there, and just it felt amazing. And when I got home from that ride, I was so thirsty, and I had this huge cup of water. As I, I'd been looking forward to it on my drive home. When I got back, I, that, I took that cup and I drank it, and it felt so good. It just felt like it went through my entire body. It was refreshing. And as I was reflecting on how re- good that experience was for me and how good the cup of Christ is for me, what he experienced in expecting the cup that came of his suffering was so much more intense in, in the, a much worse way. Imagine him picturing drinking that cup for each one of us. And the pain that caused him was so great that it caused the Son of God to prostrate himself on the ground and plead with God that he wouldn't have to drink it. He knew this was the plan. The cup was coming. But nevertheless, he said, God, your plan be my honor to carry out. There's specific uh, descriptions of the atonement of this cup that Jesus would drink for us in the scripture. And, and most of you have probably been looking over these in, uh, in Isaiah. I, I just have to read them because they're so amazing. Long before the scene in the garden. But let me read to you Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. I want to ask you to, uh, to post, if you will, when you think about that idea, that it is by his wounds that you and I are healed, what does that make you feel? Is there a word? Is there a phrase that comes to mind that you could share that uh, you feel when you consider that cup that he drank for you? By his wounds, you are healed. You see, not only was his suffering uh, planned, was that cup his from the very beginning, but, the, but resurrection was also the plan. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. So you can see in this that uh, Jesus is alive after the fact. Out of the anguish of his soul, shall, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. He is live making intercession for transgressors. This is the gospel plan, and each part is required. Man broke relationship with God and could not redeem himself. And the terrible consequences of sin were to fall on the perfect lamb, and that was Jesus. And that redemption was planned. It was complete and proven by the resurrection. 
It's a gift that's accessible only by faith. And that's the first part of what Paul wants us to see. But then Paul moves from the plan of redemption to the proof of the resurrection. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and 7. He's going to go about this in a legal way. He's going to say there were people who saw Jesus alive, and you can go talk to them. He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, first, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go get together with them and ask them. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. You know, one of the things I find about this list that Paul gives is it's curiously missing one of the key figures, Mary Magdalene. And what I want to do with us today, and you can turn to the book of John to get yourself ready. I want to look at her interaction. and She's the first person to find Jesus. And I want to ask you to try and feel what Mary felt. So as we're just sinking into the truth of the resurrection, I want to ask you to just engage your imagination for a few minutes with me and think about what it was like for her. So let's, let's set up the story. It's this morning of the third day. It's cold. Mary's covered up, and she's left her home early, or the place she's staying early, and she's going to go to the tomb. And she's making her way, and it's quiet except for the sound of animals, uh, just a few people moving. And just try to put yourself in her place. The violence that she's seen and experienced, the suffering, the absolute loss of hope, the loss of her friend, the person she, she had been blessed by so many times, the things that she'd seen Jesus do. You know, her eyes certainly hurt from crying, and she probably didn't want to cry anymore, but there was a, uh, probably, that was probably not something that she could avoid. So much had happened, and now she's walking to the tomb, and she sees that something is amiss. And she's walking up towards it along this path. And she discovers that the body is missing. What must that have felt like to her? Just one more thing. And so she rushes back. She thinks the only people I could go to right now are the disciples. She, she runs to where uh, John and Peter are. And she tells them what's ha- what has happened. That Jesus' body is missing. And they rush Back in, you know, it describes Peter and John as actually racing to the tomb. And so Mary's making her third trip back to the tomb. She's gone there. She's gone back to find those guys. Now she's going back again. So she's probably weary by now. Read it with me in John 20, 11 through 13. John and Peter have probably left by the time she's here. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, 
they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I think it's a little bit curious that she doesn't acknowledge the angels. There's no comment about who they are or how they look or how they're dressed or anything or the power that emanates from them. I I almost imagine her relating this story to John later as he's going to write it down and saying, I was in such shock that I just didn't even notice the power in the presence of the two in the tomb. She just didn't even notice the, uh, the presence of holiness in the tomb. In the midst of her grief and her hopelessness, there were still pretty strong signs of the presence of God. But she missed it. And then in 2014, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him and I will take him away. You know, I wonder about the tone in her voice when she's talking to this person she perceives as the gardener. Was it quiet? Was it resigned? Was she bitter? Did she raise her voice? You know, in any case, however that happened and however we picture that, she had to be completely exhausted emotionally. It had just come to the end. And I want to ask you to picture this in this way because the scripture indicates that she turns away from the gardener. And I want to ask you to set the, the lens of your imagination in front of Mary, perhaps against the wall of the tomb, and look up and see her face And then a few feet behind her, see Jesus. And just picture the distress and the misery in her swollen eyes and her head bowed and just the suffering that she's feeling. And in 2016, Jesus says to her, Mary. And through the inflection in his voice and the fact that he calls her by name, He lets her know who he is. Now picture her face from that angle, going from bowed in in misery and lifting up in a sense of expectation and joy. Can you imagine the speed with which she turns around and faces Jesus? And it sounds like from the text, and it's really a funny thing, that she just runs to him and grabs him because right after that he says, wait a second, don't, don't hold on to me. She says, teacher, teacher. She, she calls him that. She identifies him. She knows that it's the Son of God. She knows that it's Jesus. All of that misery ending in an amazing relief. And so I have another question for you to post if you'd like to. How would you describe Mary's countenance at that moment that she hears and recognizes Jesus' voice? What was the transformation? transformation like? What do you picture when you think about what she felt right then? Well, she makes another long trip after that back to see the disciples again, and she says, I've seen Jesus. He's alive, just like Tyler was saying this morning. He is alive, and he's going to meet you guys soon. So we have this plan for redemption that's been uh, in the works since sin uh, plagued us, 
And then we have the proof of the resurrection, almost legally, that Paul wants us to see. And then this beautiful story of the revelation of Jesus to Mary. But one more thing, the power of his presence that I want us to think about. Go back to that moment that she recognizes him. She's called him the gardener. It's just what made sense. She, she couldn't place him in any other way. Just like she overlooked the angels, she overlooked recognizing Jesus. And then he calls her, and she recognizes him. She knows that not only is it Jesus, but he is the Son of God. Everything he said was true. She was looking for Jesus. She was looking for the Messiah. She had gone to look for him, and she found him. If you are a believer, there was a time in your life that you met Jesus, that you became convinced that he was your redeemer. That may have happened in a moment, or it may have happened over a period of time. That place in your life where you threw your arms around him and said, yes, I know who you are. If you remember that time, if you can describe that, when you were first convinced that Jesus was your redeemer, what did that feel like? What was that like for you? Was it like Mary? Did it feel like that? Was it over a longer period of time? How could you describe that? Can you post that for us? What I want to encourage you to do is we're just relaxing in the truth of the resurrection is to recognize him again. This is a time that we remember what he did. It doesn't happen over and over and over. It happened and it's done. The lamb sacrificed himself for us and it is over. We don't have to do anything except believe. And so now I want to encourage you, just listen for his confirming voice. Rest in the confirmation of your faith in the work of Christ. And if you're not a believer, if you're someone who hasn't crossed that line of faith yet, I want to encourage you. You may be uh, uh, misunderstanding who he is. He may be standing right in your presence. Perhaps this is the moment you will recognize him for who he is rather than someone just standing close to you. Hear his voice and discover who he is. So let me conclude with this. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul wants to say, I didn't deserve for him to be standing in my presence, offering redemption. I was persecuting the church, least of all me. But he came for me. And like Mary and like the disciples, Paul must have found incredible comfort in that. So let me encourage you today. Remember what he has done and rest in the power of the presence of the resurrected Jesus.